Hey everyone, uh, thank you for taking some time out of your day to, well, listen to me talk about sports. <laughs> Again, I've been having a lot of fun doing this, and uh, I just really want to thank you guys for all of your support. I had so many nerves hitting post, submit, enter, whatever it was last week, um, and releasing these podcasts out there it was again very very nerve-wracking but all the support that everyone has given me the messages that i've gotten the fact that people are actually listening to it it really does mean a lot so thank you guys from the bottom of my heart this is a blast and i can't wait to see where this takes me before i get into today's episode though i do want to explain something to a couple of my followers listeners supporters um those Lakers fans out there, I know last episode I said that I didn't really like the Lakers too much. I want to explain. I respect the Lakers. I give the Lakers all the credit. I love Kobe. I love a lot of their players. Reason I don't like them? Early 2000s, I'm a big Heat fan. Still am. But early 2000s, Lakers and Heat had a couple of Christmas Day rivalries that only got intensified when Shaq came to the Heat. So, for that reason, that's why I've never really, really liked the Lakers, but always give them their credit. Other people, the Boston Celtics fans. Just kidding, I've got nothing to explain. I hate the Celtics. Why you support them, I don't get it. Again, great credit, great legacy, good whoop. Um, but I hate you guys. Celtics suck. So, yes, that's my message to some of the fans to just explain some of the things from the last episode. Um, and coming up on today's episode, I will be talking about Messi's impact on the MLS, which really has a lot to do with David Beckham as well. And then how it's kind of going against Saudi, the Saudi league right now. Also going to be talking about who the buyers and sellers are in Major League Baseball right now. Because their trade deadline's coming up. And finally, there was another race this weekend. So we will be recapping Spa. Without further ado, let's have some fun. So we're starting off today's episode talking about MLS, Major League Soccer, which I'll be honest, I never thought would be how it started an episode, but the little Argentinian man, the little lion, Lionel Messi has gone to MLS and has sparked interest to there. So here I am, we're talking about it because he's already done some dazzling things, which I'll get to. While I was doing my research on how Messi has impacted the MLS, I realized it all started with David Beckham, which I knew, but it all started with David Beckham back in 07. And I'm going to explain how much he's done because in my research, I didn't know really how much effect he's had on this league, but he's really grown MLS into what it is right now, which yes, compared to Europe isn't a crazy amount, but it's still impressive what he's gotten into. Too. So pretty much everybody knows who David Beckham is, but not everyone might not know the athletic story towards the end of his career. Um, back in 07, he left Real Madrid at the age of 31. He had a $20 million salary, I'm pretty sure he was making, and went down to around 6 or 6.5 to join the MLS. 70% uh, pay cut. I was really, really shocked at the time it was happening. I mean, I was, can't say I was to sports mature, I was I was really young, so in my head it was just, why is David Beckham leaving Real Madrid to go to LA Galaxy? Like, that didn't make a lot of sense to me. There were two clauses in this move that I did not realize were a thing until just a while ago. When I say just a while ago, when I was doing my research. But one of it was he had the percentage of all the team revenue in the entire league. 
there was, I don't know what the actual percentage was, but he worked out to have a percentage of all the team revenue still does. He makes a lot of money off the MLS. The other big one was he had a right to buy an expansion team for $25 million. It's a lot of money, but yes to an athlete, meh, that's chicken scratch. At the time, that looked like a huge deal for MLS because Toronto had just bought an expansion team for $10 million. So to say that we're going to sell you one for $25 million post-retirement seemed like a pretty good deal at the time in order to keep Beckham in the MLS. So he's now bought Inter Milan for $25 million. He bought them, I believe it was in 2019 or 2020 when they came into the uh, league for MLS. But still, he got them for $25 million. To put things into perspective, the newest expansion team over in San Diego just had to pay $500 million plus to get the expansion team. So right away, that deal for Beckham is genius. Inter Milan is up to about, I think it's $550 million um, in their just team value. And again, he bought them from $25 million. It's a ridiculous business deal that, now looking back on it, one of the smartest kind of transfers or contract decisions I've ever seen. Beckham's also done his own to really boost the MLS, which in turn has helped his business because he gets percentage of the revenue and he has a team in the league that's only getting more value. But the TV attendance has gone up 40%. There, oh, sorry, no. The game attendance has gone up 40% since David Beckham has joined MLS in 07. And their TV deal um, was... Around $8 million in 2006. Now it's up to $250 million um, dollars in uh, 2023. There's 23 new teams in the MLS. The average team value in 2008 when he was just coming in, $37 million. Now the average team value, $582 million. And again, his is $585 million, $585 million, which is 10th richest in the league. One of the other things that his move over to the MLS did was triggered a, a rule that the Major League Soccer officials came up with called the Designated Player Rule. It allowed teams to spend above their spending cap to sign stars. This was the rule that kind of brought people like Thierry Henry, Kaka, Wayne Rooney, Bastian Schweinsteiger. Um, that was what allowed them to come over to the MLS. It allowed the teams to be able to spend that money. Granted, they're only allowed to do this um, for three players per team because that's what MLS does to prevent their reckless spending. That's why I think holds them back, but we're going to be getting into that. But again, allows them to spend above their spending cap to sign these star players, but they can only do that three times. So that's a little bit about Beckham. Again, he's drastically grown the league and he's created these rules to allow players like Messi to come over to the league. Now, there's no doubt we all knew that Messi was going to have a huge impact. But, wow, was it actually that quick. So, at the time of recording this now, he's only played 114 minutes for Inter-Miami. He's already scored three goals, one of them game, one of them being a game-winning free kick. Most of us have probably already seen this game-winning free kick from multiple different angles. It was his first night. He came on as a super sub. That goal has actually got 140 million views for MLS, which is actually the most viewed video that the MLS Instagram page has ever had. Inter Milan has gone from 1 million followers on Instagram to 12.4 million followers ever since Messi's joined in here, 
which is actually more than every team in the NFL, every team in MLB, and every team in NHL. There's only three teams that have more followers. It's the Golden State Warriors, the Los Angeles Lakers, (laughs) and still somehow the Cleveland Cavaliers. So they're the fourth most followed team in America after having one million views a month ago. He's also brought in a couple of big-name players. Me and a couple of my friends have joked about it. It's basically just mini Barcelona. Sergio Busquets is already on the team. Um, Jordi Alba is going to be on the team. He's just waiting on some visa things to clear up, and then he's going to be there. And we're even hearing that they're ironing to get Luis Suarez. So, again, they're just recreating Barcelona. But Messi has already had that quick impact in the Major League Soccer that is, I think, going to grow the league to be a lot better. Maybe not ASAP, maybe not quick, but at this rate, it's going to grow the league quite quite drastically at first and maybe develop that new generation that's going to have the support because, I mean, we all know once America really gets behind a sport, it's going to take off. Um, they're going to become really, really good at it. Their league's going to get really, really good at it. They've got that American dream factor to them. The international players might not come over right away, but yes, of course, I'd want to play in sunny LA or Miami for that factor. Like that, they have that lure factor. If they can get the money there and they can get the the fan recognition there, people will eventually come to the MLS. I think. But there are a few things that I think the MLS needs to needs to change. But I'm gonna be honest. I don't know too much about it, so don't hold me on this. If I'm wrong, let me know. I'm I'm happy to be corrected. But I do believe that they have a spending and a salary cap, which in my mind needs to change. It's one of the things that holds them back. They do it to make the league fair, which, don't get me wrong, is really, really nice. I love to watch a fair league. No one really wants to see the same team dominate over and over and over again. But it's the nature of soccer when you're comparing to the European teams. They're allowed to spend where they want. So you're never going to get those star players if you can't spend on them. I know it's really... Funny to say that now because they don't really have much of a chance, I don't think, with their popularity. But if their popularity gets there, they're going to need to change their spending. So you might as well just change it now to help grow the the sport quicker. Um, It's going to allow these rich owners to spend more money, compete for those big name signings, kind of like the Saudi Arabian League is doing. So I don't think the Saudi Arabian League is really going to take off too much. Um, They're not in the Champions League. That's one of the big hits on them. So there are those players that are going to reject it, but already the Saudi league has made some crazy signings. They've signed, we all know they signed Ronaldo. He's a huge, huge name. A lot of people know him, Cristiano Ronaldo. He's signed over there. They signed Kareem Benzema, Firmino. They brought Gerard over as a coach and then brought Henderson over as the player. Um, they've taken a lot of players from my favorite team, Chelsea. They've gotten Conte, Koulibaly, Mendy, um, I believe they just got Mares from Man City. They have a couple of potential people, which I realize, granted, when I say potential, it could have easily been, here's an offer. Uh, hasn't fully been rejected, but not really being entertained. But they are potentially trying to get Neymar. They're trying to get Ziyech, who's another player out of Chelsea. Um, they're potentially going to get Wilfred Zaha, who's the Crystal Palace, Palace legend, who's going to be moving on. Buffon, he's still playing. They're potentially trying to get him. Pogba is still in talks. Granted, the Saudi League does have a couple of people that have rejected them and their big money. I think one of the ones that a lot of people know about is Mbappe. There was that $1 billion deal where Barcelona was getting $330 million and 
Mbappe was going to get 776 million for one year. Um, I respect him. Um, it's good to not just cave into the money and, and holds true to what you want. He wants to stay with his legacy. He wants to stay in Europe. He does love Real Madrid. Eventually, he's going to get there. Is it going to be this offseason? Maybe. If it was me, I would have signed that contract faster than they could have printed it. Um, $776 million for one year at the age of 24. He can then go on to continue the rest of his career and be a dominant player. But again, I do respect his decision. I just... In my shoes, not having his money, I'm going to say I'm signing that money ASAP. Um, other people that have been rejected, they did try and get Messi before he came to Inter Miami. They tried to get Lukaku, Luka Modric, Youngman's son. They even tried to get Jamie Vardy. I heard they tried to get Mourinho as a coach. Um, so they're really throwing around their money, which, again, to loop it back, is where I think the MLS needs to get. Now, reckless money like Saudi is kind of in my mind a bit ridiculous so I don't want that to be the way the sports goes but it would be interesting to see these owners be able to spend and and get some of these big names because I do think that people will come over to play in America if the league gets big enough and there's enough money in it so I'm excited to see where it goes however I don't think the MLS can sit back for a while they can't just say um we've got messy you know as Kobe said job's not done just because you got messy that's not enough now to say I know what to do to change it, I don't. I think if I did, I'd be working in Major League Soccer. But I would tweak around the spending and the salary caps, allow these owners to spend money, get these star players over here. Um, where Messi's going to help with that is he's going to draw that attention. He's going to get the fans in the seats and let the owners know, hey, we've, we've got a good sport, we've got a good product on our hand. If we get the stars over here, we're going to make the money. Again, I don't think it's going to happen anytime soon, but who's to know? Maybe in five or ten years, Major League Soccer could be one of those, dare I say, top five leagues in the world. I mean, Europe's probably got a top five of their own, but who knows? Again, America, I do think if they put the money into it, can create a good league, and Messi's only going to help grow that because it's the name Messi. He's already brought the viewers. He's already brought the attention, and I do think he's going to help grow the sport. Um, I am very, very excited to see where Major League Soccer goes, and that's kind of my take on it all. I'm going to let you guys in on a little secret. As much as those little breaks are designed to let you get jiggy with it to those sick beats, they're also really designed for me to have a drink. I did not realize that I could talk this much, and now that I talk this much, my mouth gets really, really, really dry. So, yeah. Those breaks are very useful, guys. Tip to those podcasters that want to potentially get into podcasting. <laughs> but here we are, on to our second segment, and it's <clears throat> switching up sports to the Major League Baseball. Again, their trade deadline is coming up on August 1st. It's 6 p.m. Eastern time, I believe. But because of that, I'm going to be talking about a couple of people who I think are buyers and then some people who I think are sellers. I'm going <clears> to <throat> first start off with the sellers. Whoa, where was that? I'm going to first start off with the sellers. Um, first one right away, I think, is the New York Mets. It was funny. I was writing this, or as I was writing this entire thing, I thought the New York Mets were going to be a big seller. And then a big announcement came that I thought solidified it, which I will get into. But the New York Mets actually have the highest payroll in MLB at $345 million. Right now, their record is 49-54. and 54. 
Um, it was really, really exciting to go into the season. It was nice to see how much money they were spending, but just goes to show money doesn't do it all. So maybe that's not the answer to it all, but it did create a lot of uproar. It did create a lot of excitement to the league. But either way, the Mets are 49-54, and 54, having the best payroll, and I don't think they're really going to make a push for the playoffs. So that's where I think they should be in sell mode. Players on their team I think they can get rid of right now. Justin Verlander. He's 5-5 five and five this year, I think. He's got a 3.24 ERA. He's getting paid $43.3 million this year, which is just a ridiculous amount of money. Going to be tough to see if somebody could take that on, but he's got a big name. He can be a good producer to somebody on, so if somebody's got the contract, might as well get rid of him. Tommy Pham, he's an upcoming free agent. He could play a lot of players in the outfield. He's having a really, really good year. I think he could be on the move. Mark Canna's a big hitting bat. A lot of teams always want him, so that could be an exciting pickup. Somebody that I had on their trade list, but got moved. There's my dog again. Somebody that I had on the trade list, but got moved. Max Scherzer. He was 9-4 and four with a 4 ERA, also getting around $43 million. He was on the prospective trade list at the time for me. But he was that big name that I said got moved earlier. He went to the Rangers. We're going to be coming up later in this segment, but he went to the Rangers. David Robertson has already left. He's gone to, I think it was the Marlins for a couple of prospects. So I don't really know how many other contracts and players they can move on from, but I think they've got a couple of big names that are going to be on the move. I want to see where Tommy Pham, Mark Ken, and Justin Verlander end up. Another team in a very, very similar position to them that I think should be sellers are the Padres. They're not super far out. They could get into it, but again, they've got the third highest payroll at $245 million. So it's actually crazy that $100 million less is still third place. That's how much New York spent. Um, but San Diego is 50 and 54. They're below 500. I don't think it's really working out. Maybe I'm too quick to blow up and do the rebuild, but I don't think it's working out. So you might as well retool and try and save some money. Players that I think could move, Blake Snell, he's 7-8, and eight. Uh, 261 ERA, he's an upcoming free agent, he's a lefty pitcher. I think once they do put him on the market, or if they say he's on the market, he's going to be the best available starting pitcher out there. Really, really good at striking people out, good Ks. Um, Ks for non-baseball people, Ks are strikeouts, um, if you're still listening to this segment. <laughs> Another player on that team, Josh Hader. He's got 24 saves this year, uh, .95 ERA. He's also an upcoming free agent, also a lefty. I also think he's the best reliever out there, so they've got two of the best pitchers that could get a lot of people back. I don't know if somebody has the cap space or what it takes to get those two off there, but it's going to be really exciting to see where they end up if the Padres do agree with me and go into sell mode. <laughs> Because everybody should agree with me, right? <laughs> Another team out there, St. Louis Cardinals. I think they also had a lot of hype going into the year. Partly because NL Central is not the strongest division. As much as it hurts me to say that, I'm a Cubs fan. But St. Louis, I think, was going into there with a lot of big names and projected to win that division. But have not. They're 46-59. and 59, Fourth in the division out of five. They were basically first to worst, and I think that they should be just be selling their upcoming free agents and their big players. In that collection, they've got a couple of pitchers in there. Jordan Montgomery, he's six and nine. Jack Flaherty is seven and six. I think those are some big name pitchers that can get them 
good prospects back in return as they can be a good end of rotation playoff team um end of rotation pitcher for a playoff team another one jordan hicks he didn't start the year very great i mean he's only got eight saves but he's been on an absolute tear lately and can throw an absolute missile out of that arm he's got easily over 100 miles an hour and i think he's going to really help whatever team he ends up on if he does get moved They've also got some outfield players. I mean, Paul DeYoung could move. He's a very utility infielder. Um, another one out there, Tyler O'Neill. Not to say he is going to get moved, but he's young. Um, he's an outfielder. He's got a decent enough bat, but really, really good fielding, which a lot of teams could use. So that's where I think the Cardinals are. I think they should just sell everybody they can. They're definitely not in the playoff race compared to the Padres and the Mets who I mentioned that could potentially sneak into a wild card spot. Cardinals are definitely out and I think they should get into sell mode. Other teams that should be in sell mode are really just, I don't want to offend anybody when I say this, but they're just the teams that aren't doing well this year. The Oakland Athletics, Washington Nationals, Colorado Rockies, the Kansas City Royals, um, not doing that great. They should always be in sell mode if you're towards the bottom of the league. Not to tank, but retool. Get some prospects. Um, not to say draft picks are that crazy important in baseball, but get the prospects. Um, that's where I think they should go to. Chicago White Sox are already in there. They've already dealt a lot of people. I mean, Giolito went to the Angels, who I'm going to be getting on later in here. Um, Lance Lynn went to the Dodgers, so they shipped two starting pitchers to L.A., um, Tim Anderson's another really, really good player on the White Sox. I think they should get rid of, but I should, so I should say get rid of, but they should trade if the right opportunity comes knocking. So those are some of the teams that I think are, are big sellers. Main ones being Mets, Padres, and Cardinals. I think they should just commit, realize it's not their year and try and get better. Now moving on to teams that are buyers. Realistically, a lot of the buyers are just the tops of the divisions because I think there's a lot of divisions that are super close that teams need to be buyers to potentially put them over the hurdle and secure that playoff spot by winning your division. So that being said, I'm kind of just going to run through the division rankings with this, starting off with the NL West, the Giants and the Dodgers and the Diamondbacks are the three teams in there that I think should be the buyers of that three. I think Diamondbacks should be the biggest buyers because they're also fighting for a wild card spot and they've got salary cap space. They've got positions that could do with upgrades. I mean, I didn't mention the Dodgers, but realistically, what position are they going to upgrade? Giants could also do with some upgrades, but it's because the Diamondbacks are third where I think they really need to make a push, um, try and get another starter into that rotation, maybe another big bat in the lineup. Then we move on to the NL Central. Um, that's where my Cubs play. There's also the Brewers and the Reds. So those are the three teams that I think should be buyers. Again, being a Cubs fan, I know I'm biased when I say this, but I do think the Cubs should be the biggest buyers. Players on their team that a lot of people think are on the market because they think the Cubs should be sellers. Stroman, I think they should keep Stroman. Cody Bellinger is having an amazing month of July. I want them to keep him, but he could potentially move on to somebody else as well. But I think the Cubs should keep them. I mean... They've won seven in a row as of time of recording this, and they're nine and one, nine and one in their past ten. So I really want the Cubs to go for it. I think they can win the division. The division's not super strong. If not, they can get that wild card spot. I want the Cubs to be big buyers. Uh, 
somebody that I want them to really go for. I mentioned him earlier, Blake Snell. I want them to sure up, get another big arm in that rotation. Um, but I don't want to spend too much time on the Cubs. Let's move on. The other team in the NL, I mean, sorry, the other division in the NL, the NL East. There's no buyers in this one. The Atlanta Braves have this division locked. They're 65 and 36. They're the best team in baseball. No one else in that division is going to get them. They don't need to buy anybody. They probably could make a trade, but they don't need to. Then we're moving over to the AL. The AL West um, has a couple of teams that I think the Houston Astros and the Texas Rangers are really locked in a battle there. And where some people thought were going to be a seller, after a recent decision, the Angels are clearly buyers. They kept Shohei Otani. I don't want to spend too much time on Shohei Otani. He's going to be a future segment. He is, without a doubt, the greatest baseball player personally I've ever seen. Again, I'm a casual fan, so those avid baseball fans don't hold this against me, but he's the greatest baseball player I've personally seen. They made the decision to keep Shohei Otani at the trade deadline because he's also an upcoming free agent. Um, I mean, not that the trade deadline's gotten, but they've clearly removed him from discussions and they've traded for other star players. They're tooling, they're going for it. They've also got Mike Trout. I could also get into, and I probably will get into a segment of some of the worst one franchise, worst run franchises. And I do think that the Angels are in that category because they've wasted generational talents in Shohei Otani and Mike Trout. But that's besides the point. I think the Angels right now are buyers. They've already traded for Giolito. And again, they've kept Shohei Otani. Is that decision going to pay out? Do you want to be the team that loses him for free when he come when he walks in the free agency, or do you want to be known as the team that traded the most generational or the best generational player ever? But they are going for it, and I do like that. But again, the other teams in that division are the Houston Astros and the Texas Rangers. Rangers recently traded for Chapman, and again they traded for Max Scherzer from the Mets. So they're clearly going for it, and I think the Astros need to buy to try and keep up. They've got a good team. But you can always get better. AL Central's the other one. Uh, the Twins and the Guardians are the ones locked into battle. The AL Central's really not a competitive division. They probably aren't going to have a whole load of trade away. Reason why I say they're buyers, the team that comes second is definitely not making the wild card. And they're both, I think it's 54 and 51 compared to 52 and 52 as the records. So they're locked in a battle. I think one of the two of them needs to do that one little bit to just separate them from the other one. And the last division, the AL East, I'm going to say everybody in the AL East should be a buyer. Orioles are 63-40. and 40. They top the division. I would have never thought I'd say that. Um, they're also up there with the Rays, uh, Jays, the Red Sox, and the Yankees. There's only nine games separating between the first and the fifth place in this division, which is where I think any team could be a buyer. They're all big market teams, especially Boston and Yankees who are towards the bottom there. They've got that big market. They've got that pedigree. They want to propel themselves forward. Orioles got to do whatever they can to stay up atop. And the Jays, I think, who I really like, I don't think it could work. I want them to get Josh Hader. I'm living in Canada. I do support the Jays here and there. Again, big Cubs fan. I want the Cubs to be the World Series champions, but I like to see the Jays succeed. And I want them to try and go and get Josh Hader. He would be a great closer out of that rotation. But yeah, everybody in the AL East, I think, is buyers. That pretty much sums up my list, though. So again, buyers are really just the teams who are fighting for those division leads. I know there's no huge 
opinions on that one. But again, I'm a casual baseball fan. It's just who I think are going to be the ones that go and make the moves out there. And big sellers, the Mets and the Padres, their money didn't work out this year. And the Cardinals, who looked like they were going to win the NL Central to now potentially losing the NL Central, I think are going to be the biggest sellers. And uh, that's my somewhat crappy take on baseball or somewhat great take on baseball. Whatever way you want to view it. (laughs) And welcome back from another drink break. Um, I'm just going to throw this out there. If anybody from Crystal Light is listening, that is what fuels these episodes. I am currently addicted to the lemon-lime flavor. So again, Crystal Light, if you're listening... Let me know. Let's work something out. But let's get back to sports. And this weekend brought us to the Belgian Grand Prix. Spa. Um, quick little recap. Red Bull dominated again. As we knew they would. They got an easy one to Leclerc finally got a podium again. He's up in third place. Whoopoo for Ferrari for potentially finally getting a strategy right. Or maybe it was just Leclerc having a great race. Lewis staying competitive in fourth, and Alonso vaulting himself back up to fifth place. Is he back in it? I don't know. The other big story was Piastri. He had a magical weekend, and I'm going to get into it. It unfortunately ended early for him. But yeah, where we'll start off with is kind of like it was for last week. I, I want to change it up a little bit and not just do a full-on detail and kind of give my opinion here and there. But we're starting with practice. This weekend in Belgium, there was only one practice session because there's actually a sprint session that happened on Saturday. So because of it, they take away a couple of the practice sessions and they add in the um, the sprint race. So again, only one session for practice and it actually started with a wet track. So people went out there on the full wet tires. Um, for those that aren't crazy in a Formula One, I'll quickly explain there are five different types of tires, the soft, medium, hard, intermediate, and wets. The softer the tire, the grippier it is, but the shorter life it's going to have. Harder the tire, less grippy, but the longer lasting. The soft, medium, hards are the ones that get used on the dry track. The intermediates and the wets are the ones that get used when it's raining. Um, Intermediates kind of get used when there's around 1 to 4 millimeters of rain on the track. Wets when there's 4 millimeters or more. So intermediates when it's drizzling, wets when it's flipping raining. Um, but again, they were on full wets because it was a wet track out there. About 15 minutes into the practice session, it's still raining. There was only about six teams that were out there. So um, at the 15-minute mark, decent amount of the field goes out. Science kind of gets the lead with Piastri close behind. Um, the Ferrari and the McLarens put up the, the top four fastest lap in that practice session. Sargent had a crash during the practice session, which caused a red flag Rain really, really got worse during the red flag. And then when the red flag finished and the track became green, nobody really went out. Um, So that's kind of how the practice session ended. Again, I don't look too much into the practice session, but it was nice to see the McLaren staying up there. The Ferraris getting competitive, um, putting out some good lap times, even when it was wet, because it was a wet weekend the entire time. So good to see them putting out the good laps on a wet track. And then Sargent gets a crash in that Williams car. Um, Verstappen didn't actually get a lap in there. um, But still, I like that I saw McLaren and Ferrari getting up there. Then we headed straight into qualifying. Because again, 
sprint session is on Saturday. So much better conditions for the qualifying. Mercedes actually sent their drivers out on the intermediate, so they stepped it down from the full wets. They thought there was more rain coming. Everyone else kind of followed, so they stuck with intermediates. With about... Okay. Uh, again, I don't want to get too much into the qualifying because most of it's just finishing above the benchmark to get cut off, which there's 20 racers on there. The cutoff for each qualifying section is five racers. So after the first session, 16 through 20 gets cut. After the second session, 11 through 15 gets cut. And then the top 10 of the top 10 to start the race. So I don't look too much into the times who finished first, second, third. Um, but with about two minutes left in Q1, Lando vaulted himself up into eighth. Danny Ricardo put some new tires on and actually went sixth. But on his lap, he exceeded the lap limits. Um, gave him a penalty. They avoided that time. He actually ended up 19th. There were multiple changes up on the top there um, with Leclerc taking the number one position. So I don't look too much into it, but it's nice to see him putting up those fast laps. Um, people that got cut out, Albon, Joe, Guan Yu, Logan Sargent, Danny Ricardo, and Nico Hulkenberg. Then we're getting into Q2 where, again, people started on the inters, but the weather got better and ended in softs. Not a crazy amount happened in Q2. Um, both the McLarens and the Ferraris looked strong. Red Bulls actually only finished 7th and 10th. I'm not going to hold it too much again. They're just trying to finish above that 10th line. So the people that got cut from qualifying session 2, Yuki Tsunoda, Pierre Gasly, Kevin Magnussen, Valtteri Bottas, and Esteban Ocon. Then we're heading into Q3. This is where Red Bull really came in. Red Bull, Ferrari, Mercedes, McLaren, and Aston Martin, the top five teams, were all the teams in this final qualifying session. Because again, there's ten racers, two racers per team, five teams. There it is. How it finished. Max finished with pole. He had about a .8 second gap over Leclerc. Perez rounded out the podium spot. Hamilton and Sainz were fourth and fifth, followed by the two McLarens at six and seven. Um, but... Max Verstappen actually had a penalty because he switched his gearbox. He's used too many gearboxes. So he took a five-place grid start. So instead of starting pole with a 0.8-second kind of faster lap, he actually starting sixth between the two McLarens of Piastri and Lando. Um, but that kind of marked the end of the qualifying session. Which leads us into Saturday, which was the sprint racing. They did both the qualifying and the sprint racing on the Saturday. Yep, sprint has its own qualifying section to it. I don't want to spend too much time into it. Again, it breaks down into qualifying session one, two, and three. Same thing for the sprint. In the qualifying session one, both the Haases and the Alfa Romeos were in the bottom five. Um, there was a wet track in the qualifying session two. Lance Stroll and the Aston Martin took a risk, um, put on mediums, but he crashed. Causing a red session, I mean, sorry, causing a red flag, which basically ended the session. Danny Ricardo, the two Williamses, and the two Aston Martins were out because the red session didn't let them really put in a lap. Then it finally finished. Max was on pole again. Piastri, continuing his magical weekend, started second. Carlos Sainz and um, Ferrari uh, Leclerc finished three and four, with the other Red Bull finishing fifth in Paris. Sorry, not finishing. That was the qualifying section. And then we kind of head into the race, or the sprint race. Lots of rain started it, so they kind of had a mandated wets. There was a safety car, I believe it was for around the first 11 laps. 
Um, then when it was going in, most cars immediately pitted from those wets to the intermediates. But Max Verstappen and a few people the ones that stayed out. Piastri was one of the few people that went in. Then after that first lap, they realized wets weren't the right ones. So everybody else that stayed out on wets did go in for intermediates. Everybody that was on intermediates because they pitted first took a bit of a jump. Sorry, took a bit of a jump. So Piastri actually took the lead because he pitted first and had those intermediates going around. On lap four, it's actually where Alonso crashed, which caused another safety car, which, oh, sorry, I should say lap four of the restart, is where Alonso crashed, causing another safety car, and um, stopped Max from actually overtaking Piastri, but as soon as that safety car went in, Max overtook Piastri right away on that straight. Not a crazy other amount happened on the sprint race. Um... Gonna be fully honest with you, I didn't actually watch it. I watched a bit of a replay to it, so that's why it's a bit of a shorter recap. I don't have much to say, but Max Verstappen took the win. Piastri finished second, and Gasly actually rounded out the um, the podium on third, followed by the two Ferraris, um, the other McLaren, and then the two Mercedes were the top eight. Checo had a couple of side pod damage, so he didn't really um, get into the points section. There is points in the sprints, uh, Eight through one, first place gets eight points, second place gets seven, so on and so forth, all the way down to eighth place that gets one. Um, ninth and tenth gets nothing, whereas in the race, ninth and tenth do get points. So that was a sprint with Max Verstappen, yet again, taking more maximum points. Now we're getting on to the race. I want to do the race a little bit differently than I did last week's. Last week's I kind of more did a full-on recap. This one I want to give a bit more of my opinions. Um, if I can, maybe here and there, but at least just point out the big races. We all saw it. We can watch it on YouTube. Um, but yeah, let's get into the race. So again, right away we have Piastri and Sainz who are in a bit of a battle, but Leclerc started pole because again, Max Verstappen had that grid penalty. So Leclerc and Perez are in that starting grid. Right away going into the first corner though, Piastri and Sainz both crashed, causing Piastri to have some front wing damage. He dropped back right away and pretty much knocked out of the race on the spot, which sucked. Again, I'm a huge McLaren fan and that ended his magical weekend. He was doing amazingly as a rookie. McLaren's done a lot of good changes to, the, to their car, um, so it's great to see them come back and that crash demoralized things. Um, so knocked him out. Also caused a lot of damage to Sainz, who then retired 10 laps later. Um, he kept dropping back as well, and they just realized, why are we in this? They took him out. Again, because I'm a big McLaren fan, I was watching the other McLaren racer, Lando Norris. He started on mediums, but he switched to hards really, really early. He lost a lot of spots. I think he dropped down to 14th, maybe even 15th. He, he really was not doing that great. Um, but... He made a risky move to switch to softs, which I'm going to get to later on, that actually turned out to be a really, really smart move. Another decision out there that was one that I kind of noted for was Gasly. He stayed out there, I think he was the longest to stay out there on his tires, because again, being a rainy weekend in Belgium, nobody really knew what the weather was going to be like, so... People didn't know, do we do a pit? Do we stay out there and wait for the rain to start falling and go on the intermediates? So Gasly, again, took the long pit. He was the last to pit. One of the reasons why I bring it up is he had a notable pit is because with his tire change, it was an absolutely terrible pit that dropped him back. 
He was moving up just like how he did in the sprint to finish third. He was moving up to the grid, and that nasty pit stop dropped him back quite a bit, which was unfortunate for Gasly. I do like watching Gasly. Um, he's a good racer, so it does suck when I see unfortunate things happen to racers that I like. But that's just how life goes sometimes. Um, now we're kind of getting back into the race to battle for the first, because that's where people care about who finishes first. Um, again, Max Verstappen started sixth, but on lap nine, he ended up taking Leclerc, who was at second place at the time. Um, again, Checo, sorry, I didn't really explain everything around there, but Checo had worked his way up. He was leading, then it was Leclerc, then it was Max. On lap nine, Max ended up taking Leclerc, and it became the two Red Bulls, and it stayed the two Red Bulls. I think everybody probably could have guessed that, but this Red Bull car is something else this year, and they've got two really good racers in it. Um, but again, Red Bull stayed in front from lap 9. There was a bit of strategy between the Red Bulls themselves. So on lap 14, Perez pitted. He went from softs to mediums. At the time, there was a bit of chatter on the radio. Max didn't know if he should have pitted for softs. I mean, sorry, pitted for mediums. There was rain coming down. They didn't know what to do. He got a little bit snippy with his engineer, but I think the engineer and him do have a really good relationship. Um, either way, uh, again, lap 14 was when Perez pitted from soft to medium, so he pitted before Verstappen, and Verstappen came in right behind. Again, with the decision, he also stuck on mediums. Um, Perez stayed first because of this, um, because he pitted first, he warmed up the tires, but you can't really stay in front of Max for very long. Three laps later on lap 17 is where Max took Checo and stayed in front. Um, where I was mentioning with Lando, it was around lap 19 where he made the decision to switch to softs. This was a big one because I believe rain had started to fall at the time and people didn't know if they were going to switch to intermediates, didn't know what was going to go on. But he actually switched to the slicks. Again, he was down in the 14th or 15th at the time and it really paid out. He had a couple of great overtakes and it vaulted him all the way up into seventh place where he finished. Um, so that was a great decision I thought McLaren made switching to the softs when they did. They rode it out all the way to the end. So again, I love Lando. I think he's one of the best racers and he raced a really good race to keep those softs alive. Other key takeaways that I took from the race, Williams has a rocket ship down the straightaway. I think they, they call it a rocket ship a lot of times too. But he's got a super fast car in that Williams. Um, however, they really struggle on turns. But it was exciting to see because Albon was in it in that points race a couple of times. It was exciting to see how quick that that Williams could go on the straight. Um, other really exciting things is I do think there were some, some really nice driving overtakes at the back of the grid. So not that they got notable attention because they weren't really going for points. Or racing for the top five. Um, but again, I mentioned Lando had a really good overtake. I believe it was on Sargent. Sonoda had a great move. Ocon had a beautiful overtake on Sonoda. Um, so there was some really nice racing. As much as it was a boring race because you weren't worried about who's coming first and second. There was still some good racing that was happening at the back if you do appreciate Formula 1. The other big takeaway to prevent Max Verstappen and Red Bull from just absolutely dominating and taking every point away from the weekend, Lewis Hamilton switched to new mediums and stole the fastest lap, so he got a point. He took a point away from Verstappen. Verstappen did not finish the perfect flawless weekend. Um, so 
that was kind of the race. Not much to it. Again, our our top three, our podium were Perez and um, Verstappen for the Red Bulls and Leclerc rounding out on third place. Other key points that I wanted to take away from it were Piastri's crash ended a great weekend. I do think he would have, if not finished fighting for a podium, he would easily finish top five. He's doing really, really good this year, and, and McLaren's done good upgrades. Can McLaren fight for that second spot? I'm going to be talking about that in a future episode. Other key points again, we know Red Bull, they continued their dominance. And finally, Alonso finishing fifth. Does this mean Aston Martin's back, or is it just a good weekend for them? Finally, wrapping it all up, like I will do with our Formula 1s, let's go to the standings. Didn't change. Max and Checo are still first and second. Alonso and Lewis are still fourth and fifth. Sorry, third and fourth. However, Lewis is only one point behind Alonso this time. And now fighting for fifth, Russell and Leclerc are actually tied on 99 points. So, it's exciting to see those. And Piastri, who I do like because he's on McLaren, my favorite team, he's only one point away from the top 10 as a rookie, so that's going to be exciting. Constructors did not change. Red Bull, Mercedes, Aston Martin, Ferrari, and McLaren are still your top five. And, uh, yeah, there's the weekend in Belgium. That marks the end of another episode, and if there was kind of less background noise going on and you guys are thinking, hey, this guy's figuring out his editing skills, um, I like to say I am, but no, I just shut the windows. So I am actually sweating buckets inside on this hot summer day. I just wanted to point that out there. I do it for you guys. I don't necessarily need a trophy. I don't necessarily need a medal. Uh, if you do want to send me one, then then yes, let me know on Instagram and, and we'll, we'll share details. Uh, but again, I'm just out here doing it for you guys, so no big deal. Um, as always, thank you very much for listening. I'm looking forward to next week's episode. And um, again, Hakuna Matata. <laughs>